This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 8th of March 2023 at home in Wicklow. And it is a movie-focused episode where I look at a couple of movies I consider mediocre. (laughs) Some mediocre but still very watchable. Um, Others mediocre and not to be revisited. Uh, And I put them up in opposition against a couple of singular talents, singular cinematic storytellers who approach movie making very differently and whose personal vision uh, of humanity couldn't be more different, I suppose. Um, So yeah, I get into that and I was massively on the clock when I recorded so I kind of had to rush the ending. I don't like... I don't like apologising for the for what I put into the episode, but I felt the sting of I wish I'd had more time and I wanted to expound <laughs> more on one of those filmmakers in particular. But there'll be other chances, so that might be for a future date. Uh, I also talk at the start of the episode, I just kind of have a bit of a a wrap-up of my experience um, recently uh, back on stage working on Manifest, the theatre production from Broken Talkers. So I talk a bit about that at the beginning of the episode as well. And there was something else. There was something else after that and before the movie stuff. It might have been... Hmm... Swimming pet drama at home stuff like that okay so that's what's coming up i hope you enjoy what you hear and yeah i'll see you around the corner cheers not gonna change my mind leaving the dream behind hi my name is dara clear and you're listening to the clear out you're very welcome how's this week going for you how's this moment going for you Check in, check in, check in, and proceed. You'll just have to get on with whatever state you're in anyway. You have no choice. (laughs) But uh, always worth, I believe, always worth checking in. Just to see if you can embrace that moment of, of mindfulness and take stock. It's... It's just a flash, isn't it? Almost like a flash photograph going off in a dark room and things are illuminated. Poof! And then you can see what you're left with. How does that feel? Did you see something horrific? (laughs) Something grotesque? Something beautiful? Something that made you feel very well? Or the the opposite? (laughs) Um, yes. Anyway, listen, I'm going to have to dive right in because for various reasons, um, I am monstrously on the clock. So I'm probably, yeah, this might be around the hour mark, this episode. A blessed relief to some of you. Um, and... It's going to be a little bit, it's going to be movie, movie focused today. So that's great for those of you who enjoy uh, hearing about movies and thinking about movies you've seen or have yet to see. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to get into that shortly. But just to very quickly wrap up my, my experience with Manifest the Broken Talkers theatre production that I just finished last Saturday night uh, after, yeah, basically a a two-month commitment in terms of rehearsals and performance. Um, Yeah, it was just a bit of a, it was a bit of a whirlwind and a really, really, really enjoyable experience. Uh, A lot of good memories and I'm still feeling the sort of 
the after effects, um, the afterglow, if you will. It was a really good experience and the show played to packed houses every night. Uh, granted, not a huge space, but that's okay. There was still um, yeah, huge demand for tickets. It sold out almost immediately and I managed to get a few people in to see it, which was nice. But um, even if they hadn't, I, I, it was a good show. It was a good piece of work and some very um, some very sort of honest performances brought into brought into the work. Uh, and as I as I'd mentioned before, different times during this process, just some good men involved. And it was very much focused on men's issues, masculinity, and particularly what young boys face growing up and the models that they face, the models of masculinity that they're exposed to, some dubious messaging. I mean, I've I've addressed this explicitly in, in recent episodes. Um, and again, I know I'm repeating myself, but this production was part of a larger community arts project that started about four years ago um, with Rialto Youth Project, project uh, Broken Talkers Theatre Company and uh, Fiona Whelan, uh, the, the, the artist. And basically they began this process of trying to find a, um, a structure, a, a workshop structure that would help them engage with young men in their communities um, and to help them engage with the idea of masculinity and how they understand the the state of masculinity via their own experience and I was involved in an iteration of that of those workshops um, over a year ago uh, which I really enjoyed and, and sadly I wasn't able to continue it because of a, a, a sudden cessation of funding but um the signs are looking good for me to to start with another youth group in the same part of Dublin. Um, I hope I'm hoping that's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, and I'll be able to bring that to uh, completion. And that project is called "What Does He Need," um, which and the play was a theatrical representation of that work, um, and I think it was very successful um, in terms of where it came from and how it expressed the the essential um findings and the kind of how it expressed the essential sort of challenges and dilemmas that, that the work comes face to face with um and that work is continuing which is exciting so yeah all of that is just to say um I'm grateful, I suppose. I'm grateful to, to Phelan and Gary at Broken Talkers, Fiona Whelan uh, and Reality Youth Project for kind of getting that whole thing going and inviting me on board. And yeah, it was lovely just to do a bit of acting again for the first time in a long time. Um, yeah, I really had a, a great time and really enjoyed working with the, the guys involved. So wasn't that nice for me? And now life goes on post post the show and I'm trying to see what that configuration might look like. One thing I don't talk about much or haven't spoken about much on the podcast is the what mm, the writing side of of what the writing side of the clear out the writing side of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to talk about the writing side of me. Um, and I have I have the stirrings of a larger written project. I think I want to start. I'm not sure what that would look like, whether that would be the stuff of a book, of a memoir, of a piece of autofiction. Um, yeah. At one point, I thought I might try and collate the, the various pieces I put up on the on the blog on the website over eight or nine years whatever it was but uh, I think I'd like to approach something completely new and see if I could sustain it for um, yeah for a proper book sized amount of work anyway I speak tentatively because I, I find I'm quite daunted by that in prospect 
but I've never really challenged myself to do it. So that is something I may start quietly working on. I'll, um, yeah, I'll keep you updated. <laughs> I'm sure you're, you're waiting with bated breath. Oh, Jesus, did he write anything? Anyway, I'll, uh, I'll, come, I'll return to that another time if there's anything to say. Um, otherwise, one of the things that's very high on my list is the completion. And it's kind of in my court at the moment is the sort of the final bits and pieces to bring the clear out website back to life. So my friend Daniel, hola Daniel, que tal? Um, my friend Daniel has worked diligently on that um, and continues to help me with my branding and some Insta posts and stuff. Um, Daniel's done a lot of work to get that website up and running and I've just got to go in behind the scenes and just do some logistical crap, which I'm not relishing, but it has to be done and then we can get that website up, which will be a chance then for the website to be the sort of one-stop shop for everything connected to the podcast um, and it'll have the archive of blog pieces which are fundamentally little essays um, little think pieces little bits of personal testimony and also uh, some of my poetry and some short stories uh, and the photographs that go with those so y'alls and obviously the the podcast archives will be there as well so this i think is episode 94 so i think ah yeah i th I, i'd like to think that the, the website will be live before we hit um episode 100 but you never know that's only six weeks away so who knows okay so what else before i get into the movie stuff what else spring spring is springing i collected gathered uh, a load of daffodils yesterday past an abundance of, da of of daffodils and i helped myself to a bunch to bring home to the household to bring home to hashtag blessed to present to my wife so i did that they're nice and they actually smell lovely so these are the first spring daffodils they look fabulous uh, see some nice cherry blossom around as well so that's all happening and while that's happening we're having a little bitey cold spell and snow is forecast there was a flurry earlier today um and we'll wait and see if we get more there's going to be more over the next couple of days i wouldn't mind a little drop but i need to get out in the car on friday morning so i'm hoping there's not too much uh, i had a swim yesterday if you follow my extraordinarily cool social media stuff uh, disclaimer not extraordinarily not extraordinarily cool at all um but if you do you'll notice i had a swim yesterday and yeah it was bloody cold i didn't check the temperature but it felt it felt like it was around the the seven degree mark um i mean there's there's other things that affect the water temperature or you know how it feels and of course air temperature <laughs> guess what air temperature is one of those factors wind chill is another one of those factors and they were both present yesterday so it was a uh, yeah it was bloody cold but always good always feel great on the other side and i needed it i needed it yesterday i didn't do very well yesterday morning i got very cross with the dog and i'm sorry i'm sorry animal lovers i did give the dog a couple of whacks after and i, I keep saying the dog um pepper i'm talking about pepper beautiful little beautiful little doggy but um poor old pepper got a couple of clatters on the side of the head for chewing up my leather gloves i know and the only the only the only thing i can say in my defense and it's not something i was proud of and i felt very bad afterwards and i've done my utmost to make up with the dog since pepper sorry um was it I just walked into the room first thing in the morning with a bit of a grumpy head on me and I saw the gloves and I just kind of, I just sort of saw red and yeah, it wasn't great. Anyway, we're all pals again and I need to just keep an eye on that and not let it happen again and just let things go. So yeah, not, not really thrilled with myself yesterday. Um, I just felt the lingering kind of guilt and shame of that 
because I don't want to be I don't want to be that guy I don't want to be that guy that's not that's that's just no and and, and also you know I, I let it go but yeah the swim was good the swim the swim was good as a circuit breaker and the cold water brilliant just that shock to the system and to put myself in there and do it um, very good for the head as always right so what I wanted to talk about was uh, just some movies that I've checked out recently and just some things that have come up so I suppose really what this discussion is going to be about and it's not going to be a, as I say it's not going to be a long episode but what the discussion essentially is going to be about and I'm, I'm not going to stray to um too far afield um in terms of my my references i'm going to try and keep it focused on the the movies and the filmmakers in question but essentially i'm going to be talking about mediocrity um in movie making and in movie storytelling versus uh excellence versus versus singularity of vision um and visionary uh visionary filmmakers who have a distinctive singular voice and just on the movies i've watched in the last couple of days uh, since i finished the show i kind of had a craving just to catch up on some movie watching and it yeah these are the things that have come up for me so where to begin i think i'll begin with mediocrity because it, it'll be nice it'll be more of a, a reward to go to things that are more exceptional um and interesting so i finally i would had it on my list to watch i finally sat down the other night and watched coda which uh, was an, an oscar winning movie from a couple of years ago um yeah, not last year's Oscars, the previous year's Oscars, uh, an actor from that movie won the Best Supporting Actor Award. That's Troy Kotzer, um, won the Best Supporting Actor Award. That movie, CODA, it's an acronym, it stands for Child, Child or Children? Child of Deaf Adults. And it was directed by Shan Heder, I think. Yeah, Shan, Shan, <laughs> S-I-A-N. How do you pronounce that name? Xian, Cyan, Cian, Heder or Heder, H-E-D-E-R. And very, a very simple story, really. Um, simply, it simply follows the, the travails of the daughter of deaf parents. Um, she has a deaf brother as well. She's in finishing up in high school. And they're a fishing family. Her father and her brother run a small fishing boat. Um, and they're a very tight, close-knit family. And she is the... She's not deaf herself. And she is often the sort of the family spokesperson in public situations and in business transactions. Um, because she can sign and understand everything her parents and brother says. Um and then she can translate for them or explain what they're saying when they're signing and it's yeah it's it's the, the, really the film is an exploration of or follows this kind of particular moment in her life when she's coming to a sense of i can't do this anymore and one of the reasons she feels that is because her burgeoning love of music and singing is pulling her away from her family and she has a, a rather over-the-top music teacher who encourages her to sing more and to apply for one of the ivy league colleges um and yeah and that's basically it it's that, like that's the the kind of the, the plot device that that brings in the tension um uh to see you know what's she, what's she going to do is she going to stick with her family or is she going to you know trust that they can survive without her and follow her own kind of dream and it's absolutely 
it's absolutely fine. The movie is fine. It is completely... And I, I, I'm not trying to throw shade at this movie because it's got a huge heart. And the four actors who play the family are really, really good. And one of those actors is Marley Matlin, who famously won an Oscar for, was it Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress for Children of a Lesser God back in the early 80s opposite William Hurt. Uh, she, must have been, she must have been very young then. I think she was in her mid-20s. Uh, and she's very good in this movie herself and the aforementioned Troy Kotzer are the parents and they're this very kind of in love, uh, <laughs> you know, mother and father who are happy to jump into bed in the middle of the afternoon and have noisy sex, um, much to the excruciating embarrassment of her daughter when she brings a friend over to the house. Uh, and they're quite funny, but it, it feels it feels real. It feels lived in. And I couldn't really fault those acting performances. Um, and the the actress playing the daughter uh, is very good as well. Um, I think Amelia Jones, was that it? Yeah, Amelia Jones. Um, and the brother who, I, I can't remember his name. But they're all really solid. And Amelia Jones, like she, you know, we have to follow her. She's the protagonist and she is an actress of great kind of charm and ease and just as a nice natural way about her. Uh, and that's all fine. But ultimately the story and the beats of the story are so extraordinarily unoriginal and hackneyed and have been done before that I just found myself kind of rolling my eyes a bit and going, oh Lord, really? Um, I mean, the the music teacher really took the cake. Uh, he was just this cliche of camp uh over the top preciousness smart alecky adult you know showing the young ones how it's done um and that actor um he was in some movie a few years ago about some over the top comedy about a mexican lover was it called the latin lover was that it um what the hell was his name good lord but yeah kind of kind of awful really um but he was kind of the the, the driving force motivating this you know the, the the daughter to to break out and do her own thing um until it all I, I mean i won't spoil it because maybe maybe you know on, on the back of this review you might not want to see it i tell you what though the, the movie is it's sustained by the sincerity and um, the sincerity and just kind of the, the kind of the decency of those characters that make up the family. There's something really nice there. And if it's just their chemistry, it works. It works. And there's a love interest. And I was watching it and kind of going, oh, yeah, this guy's grand. You know, he's kind of, there's something about him that's kind of, again, quite likable and easy and believable and and then i was like oh (laughs) oh i said to myself and that with a high-pitched squeak it's a young irish actor whose name is ferdia is ferdia walsh pilo ferdia pilo walsh it's a double barrel name walsh pilo ferdia walsh pilo and he was in last week i was talking about john carney's once um that musical low budget musical from 2006 2007 that won the best song at the oscars that year and john carney had another musical a few years ago six years ago seven years ago called sing street which i only saw it once i thought it was really good i really really enjoyed it and it was about a young kid in the 80s in a school in dublin who just wanted to get a, a band going and play the music he really liked um and i know the other the the, the actor jack rayner played to great effect, great comic effect, the experienced kind of dope smoking older brother in that, giving him guidance. He was very funny. I was impressed with that. But uh, yeah, Ferdia Walsh-Pilo was the, the main guy in Sing Street. Uh, that is a movie you should check out if you haven't seen it. A very sweet, charming movie which captured something of the 1980s Irish school experience um, uh, that still had 
shadows of Catholic repression and all that shite, um, certainly as personified by one of the uh, priest teachers um, in the particularly a particularly unpleasant scene in that movie. But anyway, Ferdia Walsh Pilo playing the love interest in Coda and yeah, just nice, nice easy acting presence. So fair play to him. Go on, hop hop the lads, hop the Irish. But overall, I was the mediocrity of the film kind of just never quite let me get fully in. And the obviousness of the key story beats, um, particularly around kind of the music choices and stuff. It just, I don't know what it was. It was just too on the nose, um, which for some reason, as I say that expression, I'm thinking of what was meant. The thing that I've heard the thing that I've heard and, and read that made the Rolling Stones great was that the rhythm section, which was basically Charlie Watts and I guess Bill Wyman, or who else played bass for the, the Stones? Was, was Ron Wood also bass? Um, or rhythm? Christ. I, I mean, I'm just showing my ignorance as usual. Uh, maybe that should be the name of the podcast. Showing my ignorance as usual with Dara Clear. But anyway, what they say about the Stones and the rhythm section is that they're always just slightly out. Now, I, I might be misrepresenting this and any musicians listening might go, you idiot, that's not, that's not what it is. Like slightly, be, ever so slightly behind, which I guess creates this kind of vibration musically or how we receive it. It gives it that kind of edge. So there's a slight disconcert, I suppose. Um... But it's what makes that particularly kind of rock and rolly sound that the Stones have so good. Um, and I'm saying it because that means the guys are not playing on the nose. So it's not super precise. And then that opens up something in how we receive it that hits us in a different place and makes it more enjoyable or richer or more vibrant. If I go back to Coda, nothing, nothing wasn't on the nose. Now, the only thing you could say is you're watching three deaf actors communicate through sign language 100% of the time. And that, I suppose, was a kind of a novelty. Although, recalling uh, from a year or two earlier, the that movie with... Riz Ahmed as the heavy metal drummer losing his sound, uh, losing his losing his hearing, which also had a, an acclaimed supporting actor role with his kind of deaf mentor in that. That that guy's name I can't remember. Was it Paul Paul Acuni or something like that? What was the name of that movie? The Sound of Metal was that it? That is, I thought. You know, that was a very, I felt that was a very original story and had a really extraordinary soundscape, sound, yeah, soundscape, like the sound track. No, I'm not talking about the songs, but the, like the sound editing, the effect of the sound in that movie to convey this loss of hearing. I just thought it was so brilliantly done and quite unsettling. Ultimately, I, the, the, the story wasn't quite, it, I didn't find it quite satisfying but a great performance by Riz Ahmed. Um, and again, you know, interesting that you'd have a couple of movies in a couple of years, but, you know, deafness as a key aspect of the, the plot and storytelling. Um, so I was going to say like that maybe that was the only thing that was a little bit, you know, out of, out of sync, I suppose, um, with normal storytelling. And that was interesting. Um, but yeah, after watching it, I just thought, okay, so I actually wouldn't hesitate to say you should see it. That's, that's the truth because as I'm recalling it now, it's worth watching just for really for the, again, the kind of the nice acting performances, um, and that might be enough just to go on the journey with those nice people and see where it ends up. 
and it's you know it's a nice heartfelt story with a lot of sincerity um and i don't really have an issue with that but i guess i feel anyone could have made that movie and that's not to be absolutely horrible to the director because it's not easy to get a movie made um but I didn't feel there was anything like distinctive cinematically or from like a movie storytelling point of view. There was nothing distinctive about that movie. However, if I had to choose between another unbelievably mediocre movie and had to choose between it and Coda, I'd choose Coda every day of the week. The movie I'm thinking of is Bohemian Rhapsody from a few years ago with um, Rami Malek playing Freddie Mercury in the kind of the Freddie Mercury story. And that was a sort of that was like an approved and authorised autobiography or an authorized biography in that i think it had queen's blessing but i was astonished at how mediocre that movie was even though rami malek gave a great performance um and yeah i mean whatever but that movie i found offensively unimaginative unoriginal um to me it was like a, a I don't know. It was just so. It was just so uninteresting. The whole bloody thing, it, you know. It was like the director, who, and I can't even remember who directed it. Um, someone who was attached to it and then wasn't on it anymore. Was it Brian Singer? But that movie was like someone had never, ever seen a biopic before, and thought they were the first person to do it, and just telling the story in a completely unimaginative unoriginal way chronologically uh it was just i don't know it's just kind of naff and not very interesting at all and i still can't believe that it didn't it didn't win best picture did it did it win best picture over a star is born (laughs) (laughs) my cherished A Star Is Born the Lady Gaga Bradley Cooper movie which I still think a few duff sequences here and there uh, you know notwithstanding is a terrific movie really really good Um, anyway so that's kind of the mediocre thing and just I'm going to throw in one more movie into this mediocre discussion because I my my daughter was home sick from school on Monday and we sat down to watch a movie on Monday afternoon just to chill out and I was enjoying just spending time with her after being very busy over the last couple of months and we sat down and watched The Secret Life of Walter Mitty which I think is 10 years old now and that is directed by Ben Stiller and of course it's based on the James Thurber short story from eons ago, which was that made into a movie with Danny Kaye? I feel I've, I've, I've got an image of Danny Kaye in my mind. Um, and I'd seen The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, the, the Ben Stiller version, a couple of times, and I'd shown it to students, because it's kind of an easy watch, and it's kind of effortless. Um, but... The more I was watching it the other day, and my, my daughter was quite engaged, but not sufficiently engaged to kind of to watch it with great attention from start to finish. And in fact, she was more inspired by the way Life magazine is featured in the movie. She, she was inspired by that to reach for a book from our bookshelf at home, which is fundamentally a collection of all the great life photographs. Um, I'm sure... You know, you, you might be familiar with that book. So as she was watching the movie, she was flicking through this book of, yeah, amazing photography. And we were sort of talking about the photographs in the book and different figures who came up in it. Um, but that movie is too long. And it is, there's no way, no way of shaking the feeling by the end of it that it is just this ludicrous ben stiller vanity project and i actually don't know anything about what ben stiller is like off camera uh he's always been pretty prolific and had a very successful career um and i've enjoyed certain of his acting performances maybe my favorite acting performance from ben stiller is his cameo in anchorman 
when he turns up as a sort of a Hispanic gang leader in this kind of pastiche of a West Side Story like gang melee. Um, I think <laughs> just that little glimpse of him being a, a hard ass gang leader is hilarious. Um, he's also, yeah, <laughs> yeah, other, other ones come to mind. But anyway, and maybe if you're a guy who plays kind of has played comic characters, comic relief, doofuses, comic grotesques, comic idiots, a la his character in Zoolander, or maybe even his sort of loser, not lo- a loser, it's probably a bit harsh, his character, the put upon Greg Fokker in um, Meet the Parents, um, or you know, the grotesque Jim, uh, Jim owner he plays in Dodgeball. Uh, when you've played those characters, um, maybe you're yearning for an almost conventional romantic lead uh, or yeah, leading man arc. Um, and I think that's what he did. He indulged himself enormously in uh, Walter Mitty. But there was something about it. It just lacked, it lacks life. It lacks spontaneity, which is ironic considering it's all about life magazine and life, the metaphor um, to go out and, you know, seek adventure and, you know, daring do and, you know, you know broadening one's horizons. Um, and he does go on that journey literally and figuratively uh, and ultimately gets the girl he wants. And there are sequences that are quite cute and some sequences that are quite funny. But ultimately, you just can't shake the feeling that it, it it's taking itself entirely too seriously. Uh, there's, a, there's this kind of heavy sincerity and weight to... But, you know, Walter Mitty's plight as played by Ben Stiller, like this kind of lonely, sad, depressed, grief-stricken man um, who is ultimately acclaimed uh, as sort of totally, you know, integral to the success of the magazine by the magazine's renegade photographer played quite funnily by, by Sean Penn. Uh, but yeah, again, you come away, came away, I came away from that movie thinking, okay, so it's kind of nice to look at and it's certainly well made and it certainly has a visual style. I think Ben Stiller is quite a very, a very good movie maker. And yet I came away feeling like I'd watched an overlong Apple commercial and anyone who knows me, I don't know if I've had my Apple rant before on the podcast, but I'm not a big fan of Apple. I I think they epitomize the most manipulative side of advertising um, and devices, products as symbols of status and symbols of lifestyle and symbols of uh, of kind of the culture of cool, which I find you're just so phony. That's what I find myself resisting. Like everyone in, in Apple advertising is, you know, very diverse, good looking, alternative, creative. And they always do things at, at, at the magic hour. It's either sunrise or sunset. And they're always living in cool places. And I just detest all of it. I detest all of it with a passion. Now you might go, well, what's the alternative? <laughs> putting some unattractive person um you know in a dank uh under furnished flat uh under rain clouds because you know because those people use apple products too i i i'd find it more believable i suppose but just don't sell me don't sell me cool don't sell me cool i can't stand it I can't stand it. And Ben Stiller didn't help himself by using, I think it was Jose Gonzalez's music in the movie as well. So there's there's that. And that all, it all becomes this kind of elevator pablum. Um, yeah. So it kind of made me sad watching it because I feel, I feel like Ben Stiller is more talented than that. 
And he's like, screw you. <laughs> I'm sure Ben Stiller is really upset by my critique. Now, I've spent far too long talking about mediocrity. Um, but the other, another movie I watched, uh, two other movies I watched, Roman Polanski's Repulsion from 1965. Holy hell. What? What a movie. Such a 60s movie and set in London, which feels so appropriate. I think it was his first English language movie. I think it was his first movie after uh, Knife in the Water, which was this kind of breakout movie, which is... um, that was in Polish, wasn't it? Um, yeah, that was it. And that's an interesting movie to watch as well. But Repulsion is really, it's really interesting. And it's such an interestingly shot movie. And again, such a distinctive cinematic voice announcing itself to English language cinema at that time. And very... I don't know, very sort of audaciously subverting the whole swinging 60s idea by centering the story about, you know, centering the story on a beautiful young woman who is repulsed by sex uh, and lives with a sister who isn't and fundamentally descends into a psychotic state as her response to her sense of sex being all around her and her sense of being desired and being objectified. Um, And she kind of almost sleepwalks through the movie in a catatonic state of internal trauma as she's wrestling with her, her demons, her memories and her her sort of her sense memories um, and she starts to have hallucinations and starts to believe she's being sexually assaulted and descends into a, a state of kind of self-neglect but it's yeah it, it's just a disconcerting unsettling movie that again you know that, that, that that's very dated as well in terms of it's got such a 60s feeling um and it's the it's the way people speak it's the sort of the mode and like i mean the way they speak in terms of the language they use but also the sort of the 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 the, the cadence um of those particular accents the the style it you know it's a you know again very much of its moment um and then just to add to the sort of slightly off-kilter thing, Polanski cast two French women as the sisters. Now, I've forgotten the sister's name, but the, the main actress, um, the main character was played by a young Catherine Deneuve, who I think was only in her early 20s at that stage. And yeah, it's, it's yeah, it, just such confident storytelling, such absolute certainty in what he was trying to depict um and the movie starts with a close-up of the protagonist's eye and it finishes with another close-up of another eye and I suppose what I took away from that was this is all about subjectivity. It's all about the the subjective nature of experience. And this is something I've talked about on and off um for the you know over the lifetime of the podcast um and even dedicated episodes to it. But subjectivity is never well, I suspect, because thankfully I haven't been in that situation, although I could speak about it from a, a, a depression point of view, but the subjectivity of someone whose mind is unravelling must be such a, a frightening place to be, such a frightening experience. Now, I've 
had people close to me who've been in altered states um, and in the grip of psychosis. And it, it's very unsettling to be in the company of those people um, and to have a, a strong sense that they are experiencing reality in a radically, radically different way to to you. But um, yeah, I think I think that's what Polanski was saying with that. You know, we're going to get inside this young woman's viewpoint. We're, and I'm going to show you how she sees the world and how she's experiencing this horrific period in her life. Um, and then there's, little, there's just little Polanski touches. Um, and maybe the most obvious one in the movie. And I mean, I'm just going to seek this out. I'm sure, you, you know, if you can't get it online, you'll get it. Where, where would you get it? DVD, it's out there. You'll get it. You'll get it. Um, but the, one of the most obvious ones is there is a skinned and gutted rabbit that has been prepared for cooking, but it, which is abandoned as the, the the older sister was going to cook it, and then she goes away for the weekend, and the younger sister never takes it upon herself to either cook the rabbit or to dispose of it. So it's just left sitting out on a plate to be eaten by flies. Um, And there's just something off-putting, grotesque and very visceral about seeing the rabbit because Polanski's camera lingers on it. Um, intermittently throughout the throughout the movie, and I always I when I'm watching movies and they're being shown stuff like that, I always think of the smell. What would that smell like? Because it's it, it where the movie's set in a particularly hot period of the summer in London, and people are you know sweating and roasting, and I'm just thinking about that rabbit going off in the heat. Um, and there's something in the Polanski vision that he just has he's always had a, a, you know, an instinct for the unsettling and that's not accidental is it? it comes from somewhere and in fact a brilliant book I read um, at the start of last year and I'm sure I spoke about it at the time it's The Big Goodbye by Sam Wasson that's W-A-S-S-O-N. And that is a terrific book which documents the, the kind of coming into being of the movie Chinatown and the relationship between Jack Nicholson and Robert Town, the writer of Chinatown, and Roman Polanski, the director of Chinatown. Of course, Jack Nicholson was the actor in it. That is... That, that that I mean, Chinatown is a masterpiece. I mean, if you have to pick a movie that is a a tribute to film noir and a movie that is made in the seventies that captures the absolute disillusionment with the establishment, like so many of the new Hollywood movies did. But it's been made by a, a Polish emigre um, who at this stage is on the other side of the, the Manson family murders that fell upon his young pregnant wife, Sharon Tate. He's also, I'm sure that the sex scandal, the underage sex scandal had, uh, was known at this time as well. Um, Polanski had a lot of baggage and what the book makes really clear it's such a it's a really virtuosic book and it takes you again into the mind of these big hollywood players but polanski lost one if not both parents to the horrors of the holocaust and so that is in his makeup the belief that you know the, the belief that good things um are going to be taken away the belief that the horrors of life will be visited upon you and of course very tragically that came back to uh 
came back to be shown to be very true to him in the the murder of Sharon Tate. Um, And so when you look at Polanski films, um, that's in the mix. And that, that essential darkness is in the mix. And that, that commitment to telling stories that unsettle and scare and hint at the, the horrific, that hint at the darkness within humans and that hint at our essential vulnerability. Um, and if you take a movie like, like Chinatown, where we go on the journey with this very dogged, determined, private eye, uh, as played by Jack Nicholson um, and his his belief that he is is doing good work um, to uncover um, something very dark and devious um, and that he is going to get to the bottom of it successfully and as a result of that perhaps do right by the, the, the beautiful Faye Dunaway um and all his work is horrifically undone stymied and hurled into kind of meaninglessness in in the in the final scenes of the movie um and it's really 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 dark it's the ultimate sour note and the very opposite of a happy ending um and you have to put that into a context of the horrendous experiences in polanski's personal life um and the only thing i'm going to say in terms of what he allegedly did to an underage woman um is that I've always been sort of repulsed by that story and found it very disturbing, but it doesn't, I don't think it, 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 it certainly detracts from Roman Polanski as a man, but it doesn't detract from his work. And I don't see how that plays out in his work. And I mean, maybe this is a whole other quite uncomfortable conversation, but I think it's, I suppose my fundamental belief is and i mean i'd have to speak to women about this really but i think a lot of men compartmentalize their sexual lives and they compartmentalize their sexual urges and their sexual impulses and therefore create a separation like it lives in a different place um and that's not to say that the male gaze can be very invasive um and cynical and dishonest as as used by male directors um and maybe someone like stanley kubrick comes to mind in terms of how his lens lingered on the female form but polanski i feel i don't know i'm trying to think of his other movies i feel he's not really guilty of that um yeah but anyway repulsion yeah just i mean it must have been just staggering at the time i mean don't forget this is the guy who also brought us rosemary's baby another movie i've only watched once um i mean i might revisit that if i'm feeling brave <laughs> i always found that's a very disturbing movie as well uh but very very effective but again the darkness and i mean that's more conventionally uh, a horror movie i suppose in terms of a cult of you know devil worshippers allowing Mia Farrow to be impregnated by by Satan um in a very disturbing dream sequence that turns out not to be a dream at all um yeah brilliantly done brilliantly done um so anyway Polanski singular a singular visionary uh, artistic talent and very, very dark, very dark, very nasty, very nasty. And of course, his his cameo in um, Chinatown 
he plays a nasty little character who famously slices open Jack Nicholson's nose because Jack Nicholson's been very nosy and he just and yeah rips through the, the you know the soft fleshy part of the nose by sticking the blade up the nostril and flicking it out it's a great little sequence and he's just like this <laughs> tiny nasty little guy um, now to go from nastiness let's and, and in a way this maybe this next director and I've got about maybe 15 minutes left to speak about this maybe this next director is the polar opposite of Polanski in that he is the ultimate happy ending guy and the, the a director who finds the light and loves the light and loves the magic and the wonder and the awe um, that can be found in life and the magic and the wonder and the awe that can reside in very ordinary people. And I am talking about Steven Spielberg, uh, whose movie The Fablemans I caught recently. So The Fablemans, if you don't know, um, is fundamentally Spielberg's it's not his life story but it's it's the story of his kind of coming of age as a kid and kind of his the early stages of his maturation into I'm going to be a movie maker and it's 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 kind of a love letter to his youth and his his journey and his family um until he found himself sitting face to face with one of the all-time great Hollywood directors for a very funny final scene and final final moment of the movie um and i suppose fableman is just another version like i mean if if it doesn't sound immediately obvious to you let's just say yeah fableman sounds like a jewish name and instead of just calling it the spielbergs and if you think spiel is a story um he just with the, the 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 writer playwright and screenwriter tony kushner with whom he also collaborated on what i thought was a brilliant brilliant west side story from a couple of years ago um they went let's just call this guy fableman so it's like and you hear that and you can't you can't help but go oh story man storyteller and uh, I, I had never thought of it before in that way until thinking about it in these terms. But it is a case of nominative determinism. Spielberg. I'm going to be the guy who tells great spiels. And it's a really... it's it, like, it, The movie itself, I don't know if I'd say it's one of Spielberg's great, great movies, but it is a great movie. And he is a great, great storyteller and a great visual storyteller. And he is essentially such a positive benign storyteller that you always come away with a sort of a a bit a sense of kind of human uplift and i did hear him speaking about the movie on the podcast smartless and he, he just comes across so well such a sort of a he must be very comfortable in his skin at this stage seeing as he's this kind of older um you know, one of the kind of the, 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 the one of the kind of elite Hollywood elders. I mean, it's basically the new Hollywood generation as the old granddads of Hollywood now, because he would have been a contemporary of Scorsese and Coppola and De Palma, uh, Paul Schrader um, and others. And if you read Peter Sis- Peter Biskin's um, uh, Hollywood kind of trash epic um Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, is that what it's called? Um, he doesn't depict, George Lucas would have been in that mix of directors as well. He kind of depicts Spielberg as a bit kind of nebbishy and not really a hit with the ladies and not particularly cool. Um, and yeah, it, but like, again, I, I, as, as much as I've enjoyed that book, the couple of times I've read it, it is very salacious. It is... I don't want to say it's mean-spirited, but it's a bit too willing to kind of stick the knife in. Um, and Spielberg is, I feel he's kind of condescended to almost in that. Um, because he's not, 
he's not maverick enough or ballsy enough or badass enough in way in the in in the way maybe some of those other directors were and some maybe himself and George Lucas were were slightly outliers in that they really they each clearly were much more committed to an idea of commercial cinema and commercial storytelling um which i don't think makes them any less talented or any less interesting um as as subjects of kind of discussion and i was certainly a big spielberg guy growing up by virtue of being in the absolute target audience for movies like et and close encounters of the third kind to a lesser extent which was i guess not really a kids movie um although i remember being taken to the cinema to see that by um my aunt and uncle um that's a my uncle who passed away recently um and finding it sort of beguiling and haunting and sort of awe-inspiring just i think because of the atmosphere and and the visuals and going on this journey with richard dreyfus but it was, it was actually one of the kids in the movie um who is i think is he disappeared early on or does he see these aliens are there are the ufos early on in the movie and i remember that stayed with me for ages afterwards just the what i felt was the sort of innate vulnerability of the child being exposed to something huge and alien and unknowable and the child's kind of fearlessness which put the child in danger um this little blonde boy uh, in the early scenes of that movie, you can see that. Um, but yeah, E.T., Close Encounters, and then Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, I mean, just couldn't have, you know, knocked my socks off more as whatever I would have been then, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, who already loved Han Solo, and then to see him as Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford playing him as Indiana Jones, um, I just thought, this is great. It just doesn't get any better than this. And you've heard me refer before on the podcast to Steven Soderbergh, the director, hailing uh, Steven Spielberg as one of the great visual storytellers um, and having such faith in that idea that he, Steven Soderbergh put up a version of Raiders of the Lost Ark on his own website in black and white as a silent movie, just with a music uh, soundtrack to it. And saying you can watch the movie and understand everything just going scene to scene to scene because Spielberg is such a great visual storyteller and there's more of that great visual storytelling evident in um, The Fablemans and it really is it's kind of lovely it's kind of a lovely movie and it's one I will revisit um, uh, because it's it's just capturing this journey of falling in love with movies, which I can relate to, but I don't have any, I've never had any capacity or particular inclination to try and make movies. Um, but again, vicariously, you go on that journey through this young Spielberg proxy uh, who was, yeah, lovely, a really charming performance by, I don't know, again, this young actor who I'd never seen before. But he was very, very good. Um, what was his name now? Oh, Gabriel LaBelle. Anything to Patty LaBelle? He's white, so maybe not. Um, and great performances from Paul Dano and Michelle Williams as the Spielberg parents. And apparently they're very close. They're very close um, renditions of his parents because he spoke on that Smartless podcast about the kind of overwhelming impact of seeing them present in character as his you know as his proxy folks when he was making the movie um but yeah really really nice a very funny performance by judd hirsch um in one key scene or one key sequence in the movie as well and yeah like spielberg he and i'm i i've definitely accused him of this as well his indulgence in kind of schmaltziness or sentimentality detracts from some of his great achievements um and 
he uses it as a he he's guilty of it in his framing device for saving private ryan um and also to an extent in schindler's list but they are two of they're two of the greatest movies ever made i mean i don't think anyone's ever captured the the holocaust experience the the kind of the the, the taking of was it warsaw um and then the the horrors of the concentration camps no one has ever really captured them in the same way um and again it's just it's 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 the visual storytelling um and of course schindler's List has that, that there are two great performances really like liam neeson is excellent in that but ray fines as the sort of psychotic um senior nazi officer overseeing the the, the concentration camp um and just randomly executing um you know the the you know the jewish prisoners as they cross the yard it just fierce fierce stuff so yeah i don't know look i i i i'd like to talk more i might have to revisit <laughs> i might have to revisit spielberg's his oeuvre but um unfortunately i've run out of time but again singular vision jaws which i was too scared to watch as a kid definitely in my top 10 definitely in my top 10 not top 10 spielberg movies top 10 movies altogether. um i might even take that over if i had to choose only one spielberg movie if i was only allowed to keep one i think jaws would be it i think masterful masterful storytelling and he was so bloody young when he did that but just his yeah his control of the storytelling of suspense um and his his great gift with actors actors and child actors great child actor director if you look at the scenes the dinner scenes in jaws with roy scheider and his kids brilliant and if you look at the early scenes in et elliot his brother with his mother in the table when they first hear uh the dog growling and going out into the garden and elliot finding et out there but those that early scene around the dinner table and one of the sons letting it slip that the their father is seeing somebody else you know they're broken up it, it's just brilliant i don't know yeah he just had a feel for it and maybe if you watch the fablemans you'll get a sense of where that came from that ability to relate to vulnerable kids i don't know anyway look that's it that's all i've got i'll be back with more next week and uh yeah take it easy check out those movies check out those movies even the mediocre ones um they have their place but it's the singular vision that's what we want isn't it yeah okay mind yourselves thanks for listening really appreciate it and uh yeah i'll talk to you soon all the best bye